Welcome to Transcending Identity. I'm your host, Nicole Lee, and I am thrilled to be your guide on this incredible journey of self-discovery and transformation. This podcast is designed to help you connect deeper with yourself and transcend the identities, beliefs, and environments that may be holding you back from living your best life. I speak with incredible people from around the world who share their stories of transformation, transcendence, and triumph. From entrepreneurs to spiritual teachers, athletes to activists, you'll learn how they overcame obstacles and reached new heights in their lives. I will also share my personal stories, insights, and tools along the way. By listening to this podcast, I hope you feel seen, supported, and inspired to live your best life. Thanks for spending time with me today. Your time to transcend starts now. Hey friends, I am so happy you're here. I hope you're having a wonderful day. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of Transcending Identity. I am excited for you to listen to this powerful episode with Camille Leak. Camille is a diversity, equity, and inclusion, or DEI, practitioner, truth teller, and storyteller. Via her practice, Real Talk and Brave Spaces, Camille provides group facilitation, workshops, and one-on-one coaching about a variety of DEI topics, cultivating spaces where individuals and groups can fearlessly confront the most uncomfortable elements of DEI. In addition, Camille is the community manager of Holistic Life Navigation, which is a company and community that serves to support people as they release stress and trauma by listening to their bodies. During our time together, Camille shares some amazing insights and wisdom regarding DEI, including but not limited to her own journey into the DEI space, the importance of discomfort as well as being curious in DEI work, why it's important to acknowledge and understand our own experiences with marginalization and trauma, and the impact of generational wisdom on our beliefs and identities. I hope my time with Camille inspires you to look within, recognize your own narratives, and approach diversity, equity, inclusion with an open heart and a curious mind. Hey, Camille, how are you today? Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. I'm doing well. Thank you for having me. Oh, I'm so excited to have this conversation with you. And I'm curious, what prompted you to have the interest in DEI and kind of go in that direction? It's actually kind of interesting because it's not my educational background. So my educational background was in business. I undergrad and graduate business with a concentration in marketing. And for the first 15 years of my career, I was in market research and consumer insights roles. So I first started my career at a market research firm specifically focusing on, at the time we referred to them as multicultural consumers, and that evolved into diverse consumers. So helping different companies and businesses understand what does it mean to be relevant to an increasingly diverse marketplace? What does it mean to be relevant to an increasingly global marketplace? And how are their expectations changing of the brands that they buy and support? Now, those same companies also then began to ask me, how can I remain relevant to an increasingly diversifying employee base? So that was sort of my first parlay into the traditional DEI space. But then I went client side. I started working for an organization still in the consumer insights role, and they were starting their DEI journey at the time. And I attended some of their functions and workshops. And 
they were approaching it from what I lovingly refer to as the kumbaya perspective. That is, mm. let's get together, hold hands, sing songs, <laughs> we'll eat tacos on Tuesdays. Um, it was just way too polite, way too okay. polite. And I was like, this ain't going to do it. We, we People are afraid to say the word black. They don't want to say the word gay. So in my role, in my consumer insights role of that company, I started talking about DEI from the business perspective, from the perspective of how we are leaving money on the table by not investing and in understanding different types of consumers, how we're leaving money on the table by not investing in understanding different types of employees. And if we don't invest in understanding them, our competitors will. Um, and so the chief DNI officer at the time got wind of how I was talking about DEI from that business case perspective. And she said, we would never, ever talk about it like that. Would you be interested in joining my team, even though you don't have an HR background? And I thought about it. I said, yeah, let's give it a shot. And I absolutely loved it. Absolutely loved it. And I've been in the space ever since. Wow. And I know that one of the things that made me smile, because I know that you are big on saying being uncomfortable is the only way you know if you're doing DEI right. Yeah. Can you go more into expanding what that means to you and how you've leveraged that in the work that you do? Absolutely. Absolutely. So the tagline for my work is that getting comfortable with being uncomfortable. The fact mm, okay. is, oftentimes when it comes to traditionally, when we talked about diversity, we only wanted to focus on our similarities. Let's ignore all our differences and only think, focus on the things that we have in common or the things where we're similar. But that is not inclusion. That is not diversity. It is really difficult for us to acknowledge that we are different from one another. We mm. look different, we live different, we have different perspectives, different experiences, but that is difficult to be with. Because for many of us, we don't either know how to be with differences because we've been taught to only focus on our similarities or to, to get to a place where we all agree. Because if we don't all agree or if we aren't all the same, then that's bad. So we first okay. have to develop yeah. the capacity to be with difference. But then secondly, it can be really uncomfortable for us to be particularly with difference related to marginalization. Because marginalization is a form of both individual and community and generational trauma. Mm -hmm. Trauma is just uncomfortable. None, of, you know, we, many of us don't have the capacity to be with someone else's trauma. Frankly, most of us don't have the capacity to be with our own. With our own, yeah. Let alone someone else's. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So when we bring up topics related to marginalization, racism, sexism, homophobia, Islamophobia, all that stuff. What we're fundamentally presenting somebody with is someone else's trauma. And most people just shut down in the face of that. Yeah. And that's really powerful. Just talking about that too. How do you see that interconnectedness or interplay between DEI and trauma healing in the spaces you facilitate? Yeah. So th there's a, a, a lot of ways that it comes in. And the step that I encourage people to start with is a step many people want to skip over. They want to go straight to bias and privilege and microaggressions. And that's important. But the first step is noticing, do I have the capacity to be with someone else's trauma. But even before that, do I have the capacity to be with my own experiences with trauma? Do I have the capacity to be with my own experiences with marginalization? Because if I bypass, if I minimize, if I ignore my own experiences with marginalization, my own experiences with trauma, how can I possibly be expected to hold space for somebody else's experiences with marginalization or their experiences with trauma. If I'm in a place of judgment of my own experiences with marginalization, how can I possibly be in a place of curiosity about somebody else's experiences with marginalization? So that's the first step. 
first, can I begin to have awareness of how I bypass and minimize my own experiences with marginalization? And why do I do that? I think many people go to capability, but it's capacity first. Do I have that space, that room? I'm curious with the work that you do, how do you help shift people, help them reframe, right? And start to create that sense of comfort or safety to shift the perspective to one, creating the space, and then two, shifting from out of judgment into curiosity. I like to use the word titration, baby steps, just taking it little by little. So the first step, the first baby step is awareness. Can I begin to be aware of how culturally we suppress or minimize experiences with with trauma? So the example I like to give is if I'm working with a group of people, I'll say, what do we often tell people when they get pregnant? You can't tell anybody about it for three months. You can't tell anybody. You got to keep it to yourself for three months. Why, Why do we tell people to do that? Oh, because, you know, they might they might have a miscarriage and we don't want to make it awkward for them to have to tell other people. It's not really that's not really the reason. It's not awkward for them to tell other people. It's awkward for us to receive. I don't want to hear about you having a miscarriage. But what if we flip that on its head? What if we normalize the fact that miscarriages happen and and someone could share that with us? And rather than trying to fix it or make it feel better, we could just be with that. Someone shared with me, oh, yeah, I'm kind of having a, a, a rough day. I actually had a, a miscarriage over the weekend. Oh, thank you for sharing that with me. How can I support you right now? How are you experiencing that? Instead of having to keep it to yourself or, you know, the rule, you don't tell anybody for three months just in case you have a miscarriage or freezing up. If somebody tells you that they have a miscarriage, like, oh, what am I supposed to do? And so to your to your question, that sort of takes us to step two. If I can have awareness that we minimize or we don't have the capacity to view people's experiences with marginalization, what's step two? And that is that judgment versus curiosity. Another form of judgment is that we have to fix it or we have to know the answer. So lots of people will say, what's the point in talking about something if there's nothing for me to do, if there's nothing for me to fix? And this can be really hard for people to begin to, to realize that. You don't have to fix. You can just be curious. You can just receive. There may not be anything for you to do other than to be with the person in their experience, to witness them as they are. What came to me is just the presence. Like we sometimes forget just being a physical presence when someone's going through something can be enough. And what I hear you saying, you know, it's shifting that, that value can be in just acknowledging someone's pain and asking for permission in some way to support. Yes. Yes. And that is why I really like the link as opposed to, for example, saying, sorry, oh, I'm sorry that Mm -hmm. happened to you. I choose not to use that language, whether someone tells me they had a miscarriage or they're getting a divorce, somebody died, whatever it may be. It's thank you for sharing that with me. How can I support you? Yes. Thank you for sharing that with me. How are you experiencing this? So that's the place of curiosity, not just jumping to a solution, not jumping to a judgment, but just letting the person be in their experience and you able to receive it from a place of curiosity, even if you can't completely understand it, because more than likely you won't be able to understand it because it's not your experience. And this is what it means to be curious. Can I receive someone else's experience? And by hearing their experience, my actions on a day-to-day basis might shift, might change. It's not necessarily just about fixing that one individual and what they're experiencing, but as a result of hearing their story, as a result of hearing their perspective, 
I may now choose to navigate my life a little differently. Oh, I'm sorry. Shuts down the conversation. We don't have to talk about this anymore. I'm getting divorced. Oh, I'm sorry. Shuts down the conversation. We don't have to be with this anymore. And so like we actually use I'm sorry to like shut down experiences Mm. with trauma or stress that we don't have the capacity to be with because we don't want to talk about that anymore. And again, just think about the different rules we've been told. So another one I'll bring up in my my sessions is how many of us have been told you can't talk about religion. You can't talk about politics. Mm. Yep. Why? Yes, because the only reason sure. we'd ever talk about religion or politics if it is if we're trying to convince someone, persuade someone, debate someone, interesting, convert them to, to our point of view. But we can absolutely have a conversation about politics. We can have a conversation about religion. This is the difference between a debate and a conversation. A debate is an argument I enter into with the intent of winning a form of judgment. Mm-hmm. Conversation is something I enter into where we just exchange perspectives and experiences. That's curiosity. So again, we're taught from the beginning, avoid all the things where we may disagree, yeah. where we may have different perspectives, where we may not come to a consensus because that's difficult. Yeah. And I just think about on the flip side, when those conflicts arise because there's been so much of being taught that we should not be in conflict or discomfort. Some of that triggering leads to people hurting people in ways that they wouldn't have intended if they felt that they could be free about their own perspectives and they'd be honored in the process. Oh, absolutely. As I mean, as hokey as it sounds, it's hurt people hurt people. So think about it. If you are bypassing or minimizing your experiences with marginalization. What are you going to do to other people? You're going to bypass and minimize their own experiences. If you are suppressing out of, out of fear of retaliation or retribution, or you've just been conditioned to believe this is what I'm supposed to do. If you are suppressing parts of your identity, parts of your authentic self, and then you see someone else expressing their authentic selves. Oh, no, no, no. Who are you to do that? And I'm over here suppressing who I am. No, you got to get in line just like I do. Shifting with that and recognizing there's such an importance of of going within while also, you know, starting to look at what that looks like for other people externally. What have you seen be helpful, especially in group settings, of getting a sense of comfort with themselves? Yeah. So uh, one of the first things I like to do in a group setting is orient to the pe- people to the fact that you're going to be uncomfortable during this session. Mm, okay. So I say it's like slide number two. It's like, so <laughs> everyone, guess what? You're about to get really uncomfortable, but that's great. That's amazing. When you experience discomfort, I encourage you to embrace it, lean into it. In fact, use it as your guide to let you know you're doing diversity, equity, and inclusion right. There's no benefit to any of us suppressing our discomfort because that's when we go into shutdown. That's when we start coming up with rebuttal arguments in our head rather than staying engaged. So what I do is even from the very beginning, invite people to notice when you're getting uncomfortable and use that as a signal to get curious. Why is what this person, Mm -hmm. why is what's coming up making me so uncomfortable right now? What did they say? What did that trigger in me? Did it bring up a past experience? Is this something that I never even heard of before? So it makes me feel ignorant and stupid. Is this something I feel like I should have known, but I didn't? Have I done this before? And I didn't even know that this is what I was doing. So all these things we can get curious about, not judgmental about, but curious and notice, oh, this is, this is making me uncomfortable. And this is, this is the interconnection with, with, with trauma in that like our threat responses, fight, flight, freeze, and fawn. We go into those when we feel threatened, like our life is under attack. 
We can do the same thing when we're confronted with diversity inclusion work or anti-discrimination work, because it can make us so uncomfortable to the point that it feels like our lives are threatened. And this is how why we can see people respond so harshly to anti-discrimination work and diversity and inclusion work, because it actually does feel like a life and death situation because it is so uncomfortable in their bodies. So we want to first be able to have awareness of that. Now, the second thing I like to do is really be open about my own DEI journey. So I like to tell mm-hmm. participants, I'm not going to ask you to do anything I haven't done myself. So any activity I invite them to do, I first am open and honest about my own experience with that activity. So for example, one of the first questions I ask is, how have you benefited from systems of oppression? Or how have you benefited from systems of discrimination? And before they go off and do their journaling exercise, I show them mine. Here are all the ways I've benefited from discrimination. Here are all the ways I benefit from oppression. Same thing when we get into biases. Oh, here are all my biases. I'm not going to ask you to take this bias test without showing you mine. So here are all my biases. And let me talk through my own realization of my biases. Some that were evident to me and some that are, are still coming into my awareness. Same thing with microaggressions. I commit microaggressions all the time. Here are some I used to commit. I didn't, I don't commit them anymore because someone called me in or I learned something. But you know what? More than likely, I'm still committing microaggressions today. I'm just not aware of it but I'm going to learn something new or someone else is going to call me in. And then some things I'm saying and doing today, I'm not going to say and do a couple of years from now. So I really just like to be an open book with my own experiences. I got biases. I got privileges. I commit microaggressions so that it takes it away from this thing where I'm not wagging my finger at you. Like you're so bad. You have biases. You have privileges. You commit microaggressions. We all do it. These aren't bad things. Bias, privilege, and microaggressions are not bad. They only become bad when we're not willing to acknowledge their reality, when we're not willing to acknowledge their presence. I would love to know more of where you got into your own level of comfort and courage being that vulnerable. I I will say it wasn't really conscious on my part. I I, I think it was a bit intuitive in in the respect. Like I said, I was going to those really early DEI workshops and they were just way too polite, you know, just uh, beating around a bush, not really going to do anything. And this is something that I think is important really in anything. I got to model the behavior I'm asking other people to begin to implement. So how can I possibly say these are things that you should do if you want to increase diversity, equity, inclusion, and I'm not doing it. And not even not that I'm not doing it. I sort of want to demystify it. Look, I can put my, my, all my biases up on a PowerPoint on a screen and the world does not come to an end. I can acknowledge all of my privileges and guess what? life still goes on. I can acknowledge all the microaggressions or some of the microaggressions I commit and I'm still here. It is not the end of the world or it does not mean that you are inherently a bad or evil person. So for me, it was really the the demystification of those things Mm -hmm. just to like, I can do it. Y'all can do it too. I ain't nobody. So if I can do this, I know you definitely can. You can can. do it too. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. You know, Um, now I will also say maybe I had a little genetic help. I'm a bit, uh, (laughs) I'm I'm autistic. And so for me, there wasn't like, and there's still not a lot of meaning attached to it. It's just, it is what it is. Like everyone has biases. It's literally the way our brains work. So to me, it's okay. actually more logical. Like it would be illogical for me to assume that I don't have biases or even for you to assume that I don't have right. biases. So if I know, you know that I have biases, why can't I put them Let's up? Let's just put it all out are? there. Yeah. I can just imagine being in 
some of the spaces that you're in and people feeling a sense of weight just lifted off from some of the words that you're using that you're not a bad person because he, a bad person or this isn't evil. This is part of the natural evolution of being humans and how we're exposed to things and all the complexities of, of doing that. And that in itself is healing because there's so many things that are saying opposite of that right? That you are a bad person. You're literally helping people rewire their brains, rewire their, their bodies and having a different experience so that their level of awareness, even how they're showing up in the world, they are changed. I would love to hear some examples of how you've seen that happen in the work that you facilitate. Yeah. So I also I really appreciate your noticing of uh, language is a big part of this. And I find that in my work, a lot of what I'm doing is also sort of level setting or debunking what some of these words mean. Like, for example, when it comes to bias in, in my trainings, I'll say oftentimes we use terms like bias, privilege, and discrimination interchangeably, but they're actually different. Now they're absolutely related, but they're different. But it is important that we understand the difference. Just because I have biases doesn't mean I'm inherently racist or sexist or homophobic or transphobic or whatever it may be. And so we need to be able to understand what our biases are to help them not evolve into prejudice and to help that prejudice not evolve into discrimination. So when I break it down into those three buckets, and then again, I'm also acknowledging, hey, I got a whole bunch of biases and I'm about to tell you what they are. <laughs> then that creates a level of comfort with people like, oh, so if I acknowledge that I have a bias, that doesn't necessarily mean I'm saying I'm racist. And, it, and more importantly, when I say you have a bias, because I know you have a bias because you have a brain, I'm not saying you're racist. I'm saying you have a brain and this is the way human brains work. You help people realize that they may not be as far as they are. And it's even more of an exciting opportunity to work through it so that they don't get to that level um, of impacting themselves and other people negatively. Exactly. And that's exactly what it does. And so, for example, I even had a gentleman in one group, uh, we were doing a bias workshop and he very vulnerably and, and courageously shared in the group that, yeah, I came to my realization. We took a test to, to identify some of our, our biases before the, the workshop. He said, I, I have a bias. I have a, a, a preference, pretty strong preference for white people over black people. Mm. And that was kind of hard for me to sit with. And in listening to you through this, this workshop, I've also taken a moment just to reflect on something that happened the other day. I noticed that when there's a Black person in my neighborhood I don't know, I notice them. I, I, in my mind, I question why they're there. I don't do that for white people I don't know. Now, it's never gotten to the point where like, I approach them or I call police officers on them, but I do recognize, or I can recognize now that I notice them and I question them in my mind more, or I, I question them, but I don't do that to white people. But with this awareness, if, or what do you say, if I didn't have this awareness, I could see how there could easily come a point where I would approach them, or it could get to a point where I do call police officers on them. Yeah. And that's all based on those previous experiences that start this lovely brain that we have that <laughs> lies so to young. us so much. Yes. <laughs> yeah, it's just... So we've talked a bit about some of the things you do uh, in your practice. Let's actually shift and talk a bit about your Real Talk in Brave Spaces organization, your practice. What are the, what are the services you're providing? 
Let's go a little bit more into that. Yeah, yeah. So um, like I was saying, I kind of I got into the DEI space when I was still in, in the corporate space. And as a, a DEI a manager, you sort of do a little bit of everything. And the part of DEI work that I just absolutely fell in love with was the uh, learning and development, the facilitation, the workshop, helping people have those aha moments. So I decided to break out of, of the corporate space and start my own practice specifically around learning and development, helping folks facilitate courageous conversations, really helping to address the elephants in the room, creating spaces where we can begin to tackle those really seemingly uncomfortable and maybe untouchable topics, but with an air of curiosity. So I do workshops on on some of your traditional DEI topics, like a workshop on bias or microaggressions or privilege or how to initiate and facilitate difficult conversations, whole different types of, of workshops. But then I also do facilitated conversations. So sometimes organizations may want to have me come in if there is a particular current event happening that they want to have a space for people to be able to talk about it or share their experiences or their concerns, or there might be an event or dynamic that is specific within that organization, and they haven't had found the way to bring it to light in a healthy and constructive way. And then I also do one-on-one coaching sessions. So sometimes after a workshop or after a facilitated conversation, individuals may want to have some one-on-one spaces to explore diversity, equity, inclusion, either in their professional lives or in their personal lives, or usually it's a little bit of both. Beautiful. And you have talked a bit about, I know when we connected before, about this element around generational wisdom and how it doesn't necessarily serve us. And I want to make sure we talk about that. And what does that mean to you? Yeah. So the generational wisdom really comes into work I do with holistic life navigation, which is where we support individuals through uh, trauma healing. Um, So we do talk, talk a lot about generational Um, wisdom and trauma in in that respect. But personally, generational wisdom was a big part of what was keeping me in corporate America. There came a point when it came to my realization, my awareness that maybe this isn't the right place for me, but I was living my ancestors' dreams. I was working for Fortune 500 organizations. I was jet-setting to different places to give these talks and workshops, and I was miserable. And I couldn't figure it out, but like I, I'm doing all the things. I, I, I went to college. I got my graduate degree. I'm working in these great companies. I'm doing what was supposed to be done. And I realized that for me, there was this terror, absolute terror around leaving the corporate space and doing something on my own because there was still a bit of generational wisdom and the flip side of that is generational trauma, that the way for me to be safe, the way for me to be happy was to have a stable paycheck from a large corporate organization. And of course, that, that is going to be the wisdom I get from my, my ancestors, my parents, my grandparents, my great-grandparents, who were Black individuals trying to navigate American society, um, some of whom experienced the Great Depression. So all of that came to me, that this is the way for you to be happy, get you a solid white-collar job, get you a paycheck every two weeks, and you will be set. And that was wisdom from them that absolutely served them. And then I had to begin to do the work to notice how that that wisdom that served them wasn't exactly serving me in this moment. And so I had to release something that helped them, something that served them, 
it wasn't necessarily aligned to where I am in my life right now. I feel that so many people, I mean, I'm nodding my head because that was the wisdom I received. You know, so many of us, that was the wisdom. That is what we saw of our ancestors to afford them opportunities that they wouldn't have had had they not taken those steps. And I do think it is such a beautiful opportunity and it's a courageous one to, in curiosity, not judgment, question what parts of those still serve you, us, <laughs> community, right? And what parts don't. And that is part of that evolution that I think sometimes based on those experiences, based on the traumas that we haven't worked through, that we just naturally say it has to be that way. And it's uncomfortable to ask those questions. And it can be, like you said, even scared, the, the fear behind it, because you aren't with people that may have the capacity or capability to hold space for you, to ask the questions. I love that you share that because I think there are so many people who can relate to that. I think the biggest thing with the work that we both do is recognize helping people feel they're not alone. I appreciate you sharing your experience and how that how you bring that forward for other people and creating that sense of freedom as well, right? To be free to to ask those questions. Holistic life navigation is another arena that you do support. So let's talk a little bit about that as well of what's the work you're doing there. Yeah, yeah. So at Holistic Life Navigation, we offer a couple of different things, one of which is a six-week course. And that's a, a course that really helps to distill a lot of great information around reconnecting to the body in order to begin to metabolize stored stress and trauma. So this is the difference between bypassing and processing. So we talk through uh, particularly different practices that are rooted in somatics around how do you begin to relate to the parts of you that may be experiencing anxiety or experiencing different types of stimulation or bracing, constriction, basically threat, the parts of your body that feel consistently and persistently under threat. And how do you begin to notice them and support them? And then also notice the parts of you that don't necessarily feel that way. And what are the things outside of you that can support you, whether it's the foods you eat or the people that you're around? How do we begin to help the body come back into a regulated state rather than consistently being in fight, flight, freeze, or fawn? Those are those trauma or threat responses. Beautiful. Yeah. And you mentioned the word somatic. So that's being in the body. I didn't know about the importance of what's happening in our bodies until I got into this work because there's been so much focus on the mind. Yes. You know, and so recognizing that we have to look at ourselves as a whole person and that there are things going on in our body. And you mentioned it before, like a level of awareness, you know, a lot of individuals have not been educated around body awareness. So is that what that program is really helping someone do kind of get back, get that sense of body awareness? Yeah, yeah. No, that's exactly what it, did, what, what it intends to do, really to bring you back into the present, the present moment and into your body. Like you, you were saying, you're so oftentimes in, in the mind. Again, that judgment, I got to fix it. I got to have an answer. I got to be doing something. Rarely do we slow down. Rarely do we pause. Rarely are we with ourselves in this moment. 
And this is part of the reason this go, 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 this, I got to figure it out. I got to be doing something. This is why so many of us are burnt out. And so this course really supports us in understanding why am I so burnt out? Why am I so tired all the time? Why am I so depressed? It's not because you're, you're, you're lazy or you're a bad person, but your body has just been pushed past capacity for so long because you've been bypassing it. But there comes a point where we hit a wall. I, I like to use the example of, you know, whipping a horse. I can whip a horse and it'll go faster. I can whip it some more and it'll go faster. And I can keep whipping that horse and it'll keep going faster and faster and faster. But then there's going to come a point where that horse just drops dead. So there's only so long where we can bypass our body's needs. Camille, I thank you so much for all the knowledge and wisdom that you've shared. I know that individuals listening to this episode are going to take away so many things that will help them continue on their path of becoming more aware, more curious, more open in their evolution and the evolution of others, before we close, given that, you know, the podcast is around people transcending identities, beliefs, and environments, are there one or two things that you want to leave with them as they go on that evolutionary journey? Yeah, if I had to leave one thing, it would be this. When it comes to any sort of healing journey many of us are on, we oftentimes ask ourselves, who who am I? It's a really big question and that can sometimes put us in, in, a, in a freeze response or just we just shut down trying to figure out who am I? Instead, I encourage you to explore the question, where am I? That is, where are you today? What serves you today? And where you are tomorrow might be different or where you are a month from now, a year from now, may be different and that's okay. So where am I really allows for that evolution, that fluidity, that ebb and flow that shift. That's beautiful. Thank you so much, Camille. We'll have all her information, the website, the courses, all the ways to connect with you on on socials, making sure those are in the show notes. So thank you so much for your time again and your wisdom. I so appreciate you. Oh, thank you so much. I'm really, really glad I got the chance to be here with you. Thank you so much for listening. I hope this episode enriched your life. If so, please leave a review, subscribe, and share this episode with others. Let's continue to grow together, transcend to new heights, and create a life that truly reflects who we are. I'll see you soon on another episode of Transcending Identity. Mm